Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 20 Pope Pontian. Pontian. Pontian, or Pontianus, if you like. It seems a little bit haughty, but this is, this is our, like, official not teen episode anymore. Yeah, we're into, we're into the 20s. Does this make us legit now? I don't know. I don't know. When you're a real podcast. Well, I mean, we're legal in Canada now because we're over 19. Oh, that's true. Yeah, not quite legal in the States yet. This is a bit of a milestone episode, so this is quite fitting because this is going to be a major, major first in this episode. So, milestones in different ways. Sizzle, sizzle. (laughs) The Liber Pontificalis tells us that Pontian was born in Rome, and he is the son of Calpurnius. Now, we're getting to that point where I'm just going to say now, there are going to be a lot of Roman popes, like before and from here on, so get used to just hearing the boring, they were born in Rome, our variety is going to be extremely limited. They were born in Rome, and their parents had Roman names. Yep. Like, 217 of the 266 popes that have ever been are Italian, so, so many. The the, the whole, like, Greek pope, African pope, those are going to just be sprinkled in now. It's, it's not going to be very exciting. We also know that he was born around the year 200. And this is interesting, and slight spoiler here, because he dies in 235. He's not old. Yeah, so even if it was really loosely around 200, this is a really young Pope man. Yeah, he's, uh, Jesus old. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he, he's, he is a young Pope man, and we've only had a couple young Pope mans, so that's really all we know about his early life before he was Pope. However, because his segment in the Liberian catalog survived long enough to be documented, we can be a little bit more detailed about his papacy because we actually have dates, like actual dates. We can say that he was made Pope on July 21st, 230, specific date. Nice. Yeah. Woohoo. And we actually have like a, an official death date too. So like, we're not just kind of like somewhere around this time. No guessing games. If we wanted to, we could literally calculate how many days he was Pope for. I don't like math. I didn't do that, and I'm not gonna, but if somebody wants to, that's a thing they can do. I didn't sign up for word problems. No, thank you. (laughs) I'm already putting you through an English class, so. Humanities. Hey, humanities are great. History. Where's my honorary doctorate? Well, I don't even have a bachelor's yet, so I need one of those. Well, we'll start there. After this this podcast, you can be an honorary associates or bachelors in Pope stuff. Perfect. <laughs> we also know that for the majority of Pontian's papacy, Rome was still under Emperor Alexander Severus. Quite a peaceful time for Christians at this point. At least until March of 235 when Alexander Severus dies, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here because we need to do papacy before death. So... What do we know about Pontian's papacy? Well, he had two holy ordinations in December for six priests, five deacons, and six bishops. And then we also have a synod that is convened under Pontian 
to condemn origin of alexandria ringing a bell um is that like an atlantis thing (laughs) no origin is a man (laughs) okay he is not a (laughs) i don't know anything we have literally talked about this man before (laughs) i'm sure well this atlantis man okay (laughs) origin he is a prominent theologian of the early church and by most people he's actually considered to be one of the most important of the whole of the early church and he's been a source that we've used for at least a few of our popes i mean that name ringing a bell now no it's ringing a little bit of a bell he does sound like a fantasy location he does and he wrote over 800 treatises on many 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 different aspects of the church including you know religion and theology and salvation and asceticism and he even founded a christian school in caesarea in israel And this is just the beginning of his contributions and influence, because he's also going to go on and get wrapped up with the major theologians, Ambrose and Athanasius and more. But that's getting ahead of ourselves again. So we're actually dealing with him in his lifetime right now. And he has had a role that we've talked about for the last two weeks. Do you remember what it was now? Uh, shit, clearly I don't. Well, I I tried. Alexander Severus, our emperor, he had a Christian mother, Julia Mamia. I remember that part. She brought in Origen to tutor the emperor on Christianity. Yes, there we go. Not Atlantis, tutor man. But this poses a problem, and this is a little awkward. Why is the Pope calling a synod to condemn the tutor of the emperor? This is weird. You'd think that would be unwise in this particular moment when things are looking good and things have not been good, but this man is close with the emperor, so let's call a synod and condemn him. Don't poke the bear. Right. But we have to find out why this bear is being poked in this way. So in order to answer this question, we have to deal with Origen's ideas, because he's often referred to as a speculative theologian who wrote all sorts of theological ideas and possibilities, and this is going to get him into a fair bit of trouble. It's, I mean, there is literally so much that Origen puts forward in his 800 treatises that we, we can't get into all of them. We can only kind of summarize here for now the ones that might have gotten him into trouble at the time. I'm going to give you, like maybe six of his ideas. Just explain them briefly so we kind of get an idea of what this man was about. All right, that's fair, because 800 of those seems like a long and dull podcast. It would be so long and dull, and trying to just suss out these ones is a challenge. Okay, so (laughs) the first one we're going to talk about is the pre-existence of souls. Origen believed that before the material universe was created, there was already a pre-existence of what he called spiritual intelligences, aka souls, that existed purely to the love of the creator god, and that eventually they grew bored of this, and so when the material world was created, these spiritual intelligences affix themselves to earthly forms and become souls with free will. Now. People have interpreted this idea on spiritual intelligences to also infer that maybe he believed in reincarnation, but 
he doesn't actually explicitly state anything about this in his own writing, that's not really a thing we can attribute to him. Idea number one. Souls existed before the material universe. They were once these pure beings, but they got bored of that, so now they're souls. And that's kind of why he thinks we have free will. Number two, uh, he has what he calls an apophatic view of God, which meant that in his eyes, God was perfectly unified. And in this way, he's considered one of the founders of the concept of the Trinity as we know it today. And I mean, that's how we know it today. At the time, remember, even when Hippolytus was putting some of these ideas forward, it was somewhat confusing and heretical, but he had this idea of the Trinity. Now, this gets really, really complicated, and for the moment, it's beyond our scope. So I'm going to explain this as best as I can based on a very helpful diagram that I am going to send you so that we can kind of suss this out in a way. Oh no, it has a flow chart. It absolutely has a flow chart. Okay, here, I'm going to send this to you so you can see it, and then I'm going to explain it for people who cannot see it. And we will post this with the episode, but basically... What this boils down to is God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God. However, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. Alright. Does the chart kind of make it make sense? Yeah, it does look like a steering wheel. Very astute. <laughs> so, yes. So now you have the apophatic view of God in a steering wheel. Perfect. I cannot think of a better way to summarize that up. So if you are listening to this episode and you're very confused by what I said and you can't imagine what we're talking about, we will post this photo for you. We promise. So his next idea is something he called universal restoration slash apocatastasis. And this is the idea that has historically gotten a lot of flack, so this is the one that might be responsible for his condemnation. Basically, his idea of God is more like an infallible teacher for spiritual beings. And if God is infallible in his teaching, then all humans, all possessors of a soul, would inevitably be saved and restored to a state free of sin. So they are perfect in God because they are being taught by God. This actually goes for all soul possessors, he believes, including Satan. So he's saying eventually even Satan will be redeemed as a perfect being because he has a soul and the souls are only taught by God. That would, yeah, that might make some people mad. The next one will also make people mad because he also thought that the Bible or that many biblical passages were not meant to be taken as absolute literal retellings of event, rather that many of the moments recounted in the Bible are allegorical and metaphorical. So this accounted for some of the contradictions that are otherwise hard to explain in the Bible, and he divides the events of the Bible into two categories, historical events that are narrative and nomothesia, which are more allegorical and for spiritual interpretation. This is an idea that a lot of people feel today, but at the time, very, very much so the Bible was meant to be 100% literal, and saying it was a metaphor 
was not going to go well for you. Problematic. And the last one is his ransom theory of atonement. And this theory explains that Christ's sacrifice for all of mankind was actually a ransom paid to either Satan or God, depending on which reading you're doing. And this ransom wipes clean the debt of Adam and Eve selling humanity to the devil, and therefore basically wipes out original sin. So in his view, humans and their souls have been purchased back from the devil by the death of Christ. And so this comes back to this idea of inevitable salvation. Like, he doesn't believe in original sin. He doesn't believe in that sort of condemnation. This is his ideas, and this is why we're going to see a synod come against him. Now, we know about this from Jerome. We also know that before this synod was held in Rome, Origen had been condemned by the Eastern Orthodox Church in Alexandria. Well, they are much stricter, I think. They are, yeah. And here's the really annoying part about this whole synod thing. We know that they happened, and we know that Pontian more than likely presided over the one in Rome, since it was convened and held in Rome. And we know that likely, ultimately, was his decision to proceed with condemning Origen and his ideas, but that's all we know. We have no papal bulls, no epistles, no letters, no doctrine, no nothing that survives from this synod if anything was actually publicly pronounced at all. They might have just had this meeting and gone, oh, we don't like his ideas, we think some of these are heretical, but we don't know if he was anathematized, we don't know anything, we just... The only thing we can really get about this synod that might have happened, or did happen, is that they agreed with the synod that had happened in Alexandria, that they didn't like the ideas. And that's pretty much it. We don't even know which of his 800 ideas they were not happy with. What we do know is that Jerome definitely didn't agree with whatever decisions were made by the synod. Oh. The Roman one or the Alexandrian one. But he doesn't say what they were. He just didn't agree with them. We have a letter he wrote to Paula, which is his Epistle 33, and he has this to say. Who has ever managed to read all that he has written? Yet what reward have his exertions brought him? He stands condemned by his bishop Demetrius, only the bishops of Palestine, Arabia, Phoenicia, and Achia dissenting. Imperial Rome consents to his condemnation, and even convenes a synod to censure him, not, as the rabid hounds who pursue him now cry, because of the novelty or heterodoxy of his doctrines, but because men could not tolerate the incomparable eloquence and knowledge which, when he opened his lips, made others seem dumb. Oh, okay. So in, in Jerome's eyes, he sees the synod coming against Origen as them being threatened by Origen's intelligence, and his capability for stretching religious discord far beyond where it had gone before. Again, we don't know. He could be right. He could be wrong. But it's possible, and it's kind of sassy, and I like it. And for the record, this will not even be close to the final word on Origen and his theological ideas. He will be condemned and considered quite valuable and important. Neither side of the church, Catholic or Orthodox, will ever recognize him as a saint because of his controversial teachings, but the church goes back and forth and back and forth over the value of his ideas, 
And even when some of them end up in canon, he's condemned by Ponchin, but then he's considered a church father. And then he's really, really popular in the Greek church who had initially condemned him as well. And then he would be re-condemned in 400 by a council of Alexandria, and then re-re-condemned in 543 by Emperor Justinian. He might have been potentially excommunicated in the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, and on and on and on. Is he our new Easter? Uh, yes, but not as frequently and all the time. Like, this is just going to continue to happen over time. So, I mean, even today, he's really, really contentious. And, you know, if we have time when we get through all the anti-popes, he would make for a great bonus episode because there's so much more source material on him because people were constantly condemning and uncondemning him. So he might make for a really cool bonus episode in the future. But I make no promises. But moving on, because we need to come away from origin and go back to Pontian. In 235, Emperor Alexander Severus dies, and in his place comes Emperor Maximinus Thrax. What? Thrax being the, the suffix because he's from Thrace, he's a Thracian, this is the thing. And he is going to be such bad news for Christians. I was going to say he kind of sounds like a Mass Effect villain, but... It is one of those names that doesn't sound like it belongs in the ancient world. It sounds like it could be a Transformer or something. Maximinus Thrax. <laughs> yeah. Go back to space where you belong. <laughs> he really should, because he is so, so, so bad for the Christians. He very, very quickly gets rid of any type of Christian toleration and goes straight for persecution. He declares that all the leaders of the church, more the leaders than the rabble, he's going straight for the heads of the church, and he declares that they are enemies of the Roman Empire and he orders the arrest of Pope Pontian and other prominent leaders in the church. Wow. Is it um both? Is it, well, I guess Rome, he only cares about Rome. Would he get the Eastern Orthodox people too? He gets some of them, and he also gets someone else who's been in our story. Is it Hippopotamus? It's Hippopotamus! He gets the anti-pope arrested. Before we get into what happens when Pontian and Hippolytus are arrested, Let's briefly touch on what was going on for Hippolytus at the time. Now, side note, this is the point in the research of his story, which is the first time where I saw a source that said that his name literally translated to horses turned loose. And this makes me laugh. Where do the horses go? Wherever they want. He seems like a crazy horse on the loose. So it, it just is really fitting. And this is the first time that it came up. I know that hippo is the, the Latin for, for horse, but I just never, never thought about it until this moment. There's a horse loose in the church. First off, if he's getting arrested because Christian leaders are the enemies of the state, then we can infer that at this time he still had a pretty large following for his schism, and that he's actively preaching and engaging with all of the activities of a religious leader. Yeah, and he's writing more notes. Yep, he wrote a lot against the official church, although, interestingly enough, none of his writings ever come up against Pontian or criticize him directly. And considering how much he had to say about Zephyrinus and Calixtus and all of that, the they told him that he couldn't sit with them, and so he was mad. <laughs> and so for him to suddenly go, like, he's still criticizing the church, but for him to not go after the popes now... 
it's interesting. Like, it's notable that we don't have all this salt from him. So uh, we don't know why. It's possible that he just didn't have time before they got arrested. He might have been too busy running his own thing, but there's still five years of papacy here. So maybe he just didn't have any vitriol for his young pontiff. Who knows? Our Pope and our anti-Pope are arrested together, and they get exiled to the mines off the island of Tavalara. They just send people to the mines. When do they stop doing that? Uh, well, a long time. This is not the last time we're going to see this as a motif. So <laughs> this one, they go to Tavalara. It's off the coast of Sardinia. It's the same fate that we've seen for Clement in Crimea and Calixtus, because this is the same place he was sent. And just like the other two, this is 100% intended to be a death sentence. And this is where something significant and unprecedented happens. This is the big first. In light of his arrest, on September 28th of 235... Oh, it's almost September 28th. Oh, it is! Well... We're recording this three days before the anniversary of this. On that date, Pope Pontian becomes the first pope in history to resign his office. <gasps> he doesn't even wait till he's dead. Nope, he does not. And he does this specifically so the church can conduct an orderly transition to a new pontiff. It makes sense. Yeah, not leaving the church, the administration of the church hanging in the balance in the face of a very uncertain personal future for himself, but this is huge. The paperwork on his desk would pile up so high. It so would. And and they, they would have nobody to deal with it. And I mean, obviously in the modern day, we can tie this back to a precedent that he is setting that we didn't deal with all that long ago. This completely changes the way that the office of Pope is going to be viewed. It is no longer an office that must go all the way to death. Yes, resignations of the Pope are going to be extremely rare, and there are only a few examples throughout history. Like, we are going to cover seven resignations. That's not a lot. It is not a lot. Every time it happens, someone's like, <gasps> and then they clutch their pearls, and then... But this is the precedent that makes that possible at all. Like, if this had not happened at this point, Maybe it never would have happened. We don't know how long it might have taken for someone to resign if there wasn't this precedent in the early church. Yeah, if you weren't expected to stay until death. Yeah, so we cannot overstate this as a total turn of events and a massive, massive thing for Papadum and Valium. He has now resigned. He is no longer Pope. And now he and Hippolytus are on the island of Tavalara together and they are subject to extremely hard manual labor in the mines. Now, it's said during this time, the two men are reconciled with one another. I didn't know they were in a fight. But this, like, they come together. They're friends. The hard times of suffering brought them together just like all the movies show us it will. What do they mine in around Rome? Um, I think it's just marble, actually. Okay, it's just marble or limestone or something. Do they even have limestone over there? Uh, yes, they do. Because I live in a big old limestone area. Uh, metal processing for some of that, but mostly marble. Silver extraction is one of the earliest mining things in Europe, and that happened in Sardinia, so there you go. I was just curious. What do they want to dig up so bad? 
that they must condemn everybody to the mines. It is a good pontifact. So these two men have now reconciled with one another, and we're not sure that they were able to, like, get any word up over the fact that they made up, but we do know that at roughly the same time this was happening, Ponchin's elected successor and the schismatic congregation of Hippolytus also get reconciled. This means either one of three things. Either Ponchin and Hippolytus were able to write to their respective groups to announce the end of the schism, or without Hippolytus there to fuel the anti-Catholic sentiment, they naturally drifted back together. Where do we go? I guess over here. The salty man is gone. Maybe we can be happy now. Or, option three, the reconciliation between Ponchin and Hippolytus is entirely made up to put a nice moment on this in the end of their brutal stories and justify the reabsorption of the schismatics back into the church. One of these things happened. Do you have a favorite? I just assumed that they were like, I don't know what to do now. This seems like a good idea. Perfect. We can assume that with the removal of the little everybody got happy again. Either way, the schism is over. Our first antipope, that is no longer a thing. And neither Ponchin or Hippolytus are going to get out of the mines alive. So Ponchin dies fairly quickly in October of 235. And the Liber Pontificalis tells us it was in consequence of the privations and inhuman treatment he had to bear. Yeah, well, that's a nice way to say I worked to death in the mine and they fed me. Brutal. But another source says that he was literally beaten to death with sticks. Ugh. Yeah. Also a thing. Hippolytus seems to have lasted a little longer, but he still died in 235. And according to Prudentius, a Christian writer from the 4th century, his death was a little bit more creative in that he was dragged to death by wild horses. That is, oh god. That's a little on the nose considering his name means horse turned loose. There is a Hippolytus from mythology, the son of Theseus, who was dragged to his death by horses. So, coincidence or... They just thought it was funny. Yeah, exactly. Maybe somebody thought, you know, this is a flair for the dramatic. Let's bring it full circle. So now Prudentius claims that when he visited the tomb of Hippolytus, this execution with the dragging of the horses had been memorialized in an image on his tomb. So we don't know. We're going to cover this in so much more detail when we actually get to his episode on Patreon for the Antipopes, because there is there's so much more to say about this man. This salty little bitch. Now, they're dead. So now we need to talk about the remains. Like, the bones? The, yeah, the bodies. What's going on with the bodies in the mine? I hope they're not just there. Well, they were there until one of Ponchin's successors, a Pope Fabian, would have the bodies of Ponchin and Hippolytus brought back to Rome for a proper burial in either 236 or 237. Mm, I feel like they could have just gave them any bodies and been like, this is the one you want. Could have been. Could have been at that point, since it's at least a year later. How would you know? You would never know. An older man? Body? Go. But then again, all of the people who are in the mines working themselves to death, who would probably be the ones who had to deal with the bodies, are also exiled Christians. Maybe they were a little bit more reverent, but anyways. According to the Liberian catalog, Hippolytus would end up in a cemetery on the Via Tibertina 
in a ceremony overseen by Justin the Confessor, a priest and martyr who at the time was overseeing burials of notable figures. Not to be confused with Justin the Martyr. Yeah, yeah, this is Justin the Confessor. He does a lot of funerals at this point for people who become saints later, so I doubt he's going to enter our story again in any major way, but this guy just gets really associated with these people, so that is a thing. Pongen, on the other hand, is interred in the papal tombs at the Catacombs of Calixtus, and during one of the many excavations in the late 19th slash early 20th century by Giovanni Battista de Rossi, Pontian's tomb gets rediscovered in 1909. It was not what would be considered like the papal crypt. Actually, he's he's not in that room. He's in the room next door where St. Cecilia is buried. But that's because at the point in which he was buried, they hadn't actually set aside a room for the popes yet. And his successor will be the first person to have been buried in that papal crypt room once it gets started. Now, interestingly, the titular slab that covers his tomb was inscribed with Greek that said Pontianus Episc, which means Pontian the bishop, on it, with the word martyr written below. But the word martyr is written in a very, very different hand. Like, this was not written by the same person who put the name on it. We can infer that the martyr was added later, after the initial burial. We don't know why. Uh, it would have been fairly common knowledge that he had been martyred because, you know, they had to go and get his body and he had resigned and all of that. But perhaps someone didn't want it to be shrouded in antiquity. So thank you, second person. Thank you, other chiseler. Now we have been through him and we must rate him. Here we go. Papatum infallium. Okay, first pope to abdicate. Yeah, we got to give him some points for that. And this is huge. I mean, it's... It's one of those things that it's hard to decide whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Because I think throughout history, we will see it function as both. Well, at least in this case, it's a good thing because he didn't know how long he was going to live after he was sent to the mines and he was basically dead anyway. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis would say today that this is a very good thing because when Benedict resigned, he said very clearly that Benedict had re-established that precedent and that he doesn't think that the office of Pope should be for life. Francis is very clear that he has every intention of resigning as well at some point. I wonder if Francis has something that runs in his family and he's like, I can't be Pope forever, you guys. Well, he's missing like half a lung. That they had to take out. Yeah, when he was when he was younger, he lost like half a lung to pneumonia. So he's very healthy now, but for a while there, they were really concerned about his health and whatnot. But either way, he thinks that resigning is a great idea and that that should happen. In other cases, we're going to see a case where there is a pope who keeps resigning and they're like, no, you can't resign. You need to be pope. And he's like, screw you guys. I'm going home. The George Washington of popes. <laughs> so much that is going to be a great story but that, that's that is a while off so um so we have that that we need to consider for big points the other thing is the reconciliation of these congregations uh do we it, it's his most lasting legacy of course that he brought them back together but did he really so we have to consider that not on purpose but more like Mm, it happened. It was kind of like one of those extenuating circumstances moments, so... Also, doesn't it count? It technically counts as the next pope. 
Unless somebody else wasn't elected during that area. We might want to give it to the other Pope. <laughs> Spoilers, maybe, but like maybe, maybe he needs something. So maybe that's a good thing for us to consider next time. Yeah, because he had already resigned by the time this schism amoebaed itself back. So we have, we're going to skip that one for now. And uh, the condemnation of origin we also need to consider. It doesn't really... It doesn't do anything. It just goes back and forth, you said. Yeah, I don't have any strong feelings about that one. So my score is purely going to be on the first Pope to resign. And he's going to get a seven. Ooh, a seven. Wow, I was only going to give him like a four. You can give him a four, but for me, this is this is a substantial moment. That will give him a total of 11 for Papa Tom and Valium. Fructus prohibitum? Nothing. He got arrested. Ooh. <laughs> that was more like, oh no, you're a Christian unless you did something absolutely terrible. Exactly. So it's a zero. Seculari impactum. So. Any? Well, okay. If we're, if in this one, if we want to give him the reconciliation of Hippolytus's congregation, we could say that it turns them from secular heretics back into the church so it makes the secular population a little bit smaller yeah but we're we're skipping that i know it's just it's i have it written down because it's the only thing that i could have thought so zero he gets a zero for that fossium sanctus let's look at this man's face yeah let's look at it here is san ponciano for you oh he's got the cutest little nose <laughs> Help! I feel like this was an image of a younger man that they have olded up. They have aged him for this. It looks like, oh, uh, you know, when you watch like, what is it? Is it? It's not Unsolved Mysteries. Sometimes I guess it's Unsolved Mysteries, but the other one, the other one where you're supposed to find criminals. What's that one called? Oh, America's Most Wanted? That one. And they're like, this is what the child would look like as a 30-year-old. That's what oh, it looks the like. Oh, digital aging. Yeah, I'm. I feel like he had a full head of hair, and they're just like, "Nah, he's a pope. He's got to have this bald spot on top." And then we'll just give him a beard. Well, it definitely looks like they drew him properly, and someone else came in and like painted over bits. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So, uh, there's that one. That's the one we're gonna rate him on. And there is another version of this. I I've been finding the same picture just with different color schemes lately. So. There it is again. Same same thing. And then the, so we'll we'll write him and then we have two more to look at. So what would you like to give him for the old man aged up? I don't know, I want to give him a whole five for that button nose. Okay. You know what? I'll match you. It is the cutest nose. I want to boop it. Please boop it. So let's let's talk for a second about how the first picture and the second picture are clearly the same picture. But in the in the first one, he looks fine. But in the second one, he looks drunk as shit. <laughs> he does. Yeah, his eyes don't look focused anymore. And I will say that whenever there's a dog on my screen who's looking up and he's got that big boopable nose, I boop it on my screen. I will boop the nose. Boop it. Boop. I did it. His boopable nose gives him a 2.5 for Facium Sanctus. Now, here are the other two. Here's the, the token one that we always get. Doesn't look anything Ooh. like him. That's a square. Why? He's so square. It's a very weird one. It's, I don't know. There's nothing really super distinctive about it. It's just off putting. It's a square. 
He's got a really uneven and unlevel tonsure as well. It's not good. Whoever had to draw this was probably, like, Paul the intern. And now here is the one where we actually get, like, young man Pope. Oh, no, it's a Jafif. Oh, it's a Jafif again. No one outside of Patreon knows our pain with Jafif. Well, they're going to have to get on and listen to our very first uh, Patreon episode to hear the whole of the Jafif saga. So there you go. That's a young man. It looks more like a king to me than a Pope. Odd. Yep. That is his face. Many times his face. Tempus Pontificus. Okay, so we have exact dates, like I said. July 21st, 2.30 to September 28th, 2.35. And his papacy goes to September, but he dies in October. It In this case, it doesn't change our score. He still has a five-year papacy for a score of 1.25. Hooray! All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yep, saint. All right, when are we going to get to the first one that's not a saint so that I can be surprised? It is, I actually have it, like, on our spreadsheet in giant letters. The first one who's not a saint has a big no in that category. No. It's going to be episode 52. Oh. Oh my god, I'll forget by then. I know you will. And you'll ask me a trick question, and then I'll be laughed at. <laughs> you will. Just like Atlantis. So, look. <laughs> so, this guy is a saint. He used to have his own feast day on November 19th. But since 1969, he and Hippolytus are commemorated together on August 13th. Oh. Ponchin is not a patron saint, but Hippolytus is, and he is the patron saint of horses. Well, he would be. That's real insulting. There's even a church dedicated to him in Hertfordshire in England, where sick horses used to be brought during the Middle Ages for his blessing. So, that means we can make Pope Ponchin a patron saint of whatever you'd like. Oh, a patron saint of something. Boopable noses? No, boopable noses is too obvious. Mmm. Let me have a think for a minute. He could be the patron saint of the two weeks notice. That's good. Patron saint of quitting gracefully. The two weeks notice, yes. You do it properly. You ha you even write your resignation letter and you go to your boss directly, you know. All of the classy stops. I think that works. I guess we should go over his total score. What is it? It is a 15.75. Not bad. Decent. He scored less than our last Pope. That's okay. <laughs> the one who had nothing notable in his reign. But yeah, I, I feel like he needed a meaty score in Papatum and Thallium for, for doing the thing. So now we need to ask our final question. Is he papely enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Has he made an impact enough for a papal bull? Uh, I want to say no, but I know you're kind of gung-ho about the... Yeah, I mean, this is this is a hard one. He's not super interesting as a person, but this is a pretty significant moment. So um, it's I want to give it to him for that, but I don't think the rest carries through. The rest of his story doesn't do anything. But he did do that one thing that's pretty awesome. When I think of popes who have had the papal bull, I think, you know, Peter, Clement, 
Calixtus. Like these are huge personalities who have done more than one major thing in the church. As much as I want to give it to him, I am convinced not to. That is a no, Ponchin. But I feel like you'd accept that. <laughs> you would be very graceful about it. You would. Grace gracious, that's the word I wanted. Gracious. He is he is very gracious about it. Yeah, well, l- listeners, if you think we made a mistake, there's always going to be a wild bonus round later on. Well, there will be unless we get the perfect number to divide into rounds cuz then I'm not going to try and add another one. But if we have like an odd number and we can fit one in, that would be cool. And he would be a contender for that, you know. Keep him in mind if you think he's got the stuff. And if you think he was robbed, because there has been almost someone for every pope that we've had so far who wants to fight for them. And I kind of like that, that each pope has their own cheerleader. So who's going to pick up for Ponchin? Let's find out. We'll find out on Twitter. (laughs) We definitely will. This week, we are going to thank the Why Is That podcast because they made us their daily recommendation today. They're doing a thing where they're actually recommending not just podcasts, but a specific episode of each podcast that they think showcases uh, the show very well. And for us, they chose episode 12, which was Pope Pius I. I don't remember what happened in that. Was that a really funny one, or was that just... Well, here we go. A pope who was overshadowed by his contemporaries, to me, is a quintessential Antonicene pope. Despite that, his life is told wonderfully, the comedy helps illustrate the point and the time period. All right. That is the one who was, like, the backstage guy in his own episode, so. So thank you to the Why Is That podcast for recommending us. That's super cool. And we need to thank Rex Factor for our inspiration, and Totalis Rankium, of course, and... Every time. Every time. You guys are the best and deserve it every time, so. And Saga thing for their forked beards? For their potential forky beard commentary. I mean, I am going to tweet John about it and let him know so that when he listens to it, he won't be so incredibly startled (laughs) that he's getting his own facium sanctus. Oh, whoops. Surprise! So, the first first non-popey person to have a facium sanctus. It's a, it is an honor, or it will be at some point. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. With that, we say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Mm -hmm.